1: Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Less
2: than one week until the election. The latest from the campaign trail. We check in with Bloomberg Washington Bureau Chief Craig Gordon. All of that plus the S&P 500 tumbles in the worst stock route in four months. Bloomberg's Katie Greenfield will join us to break down what happened in the markets today. And we check in with Uh, Aaron McPike and John Citalides for our all-star political panel. All of that in an interview with Senator Kevin Kramer. Lots to get through. Can you believe it, folks? Less than one week until the presidential election and, of course, the all-important, equally as important, really, Senate races. Former Vice President Joe Biden was in his home state of Delaware where he voted early and delivered remarks at the Queen Hotel in Wilmington. Take a listen.
4: This country can't afford four more years of a president who thinks he's only responsible for the well-being of the people who voted for him.
2: Now, Joe Biden is one of the nearly 80 million Americans who now have already cast their ballot in what is a record-shattering early vote turnout. Meanwhile, President Trump, speaking to reporters in Las Vegas after a campaign event, condemned the looting and sometimes violent protests in Philadelphia. Located, of course, in the city uh, in Pennsylvania, a key battleground state, this following the deadly police shooting of Walter Wallace Jr.
5: Here he is.
4: You can't let that go on. Again, a Democrat run state, a
5: Democrat run city, Philadelphia. We don't have that.
2: All of that as the Northeast is now running America's biggest COVID-19 surveillance operation as the coronavirus resurgence sweeps the country, sending U.S. testing overall to a record. Here to break down the pandemic, the politics, and of course, what's going to be driving the policy is Bloomberg's Washington bureau chief, Craig Gordon. Craig, great to have you on the program. Here we go. Buckle up. What's driving the final contours of this election?
6: Uh, I think you're seeing right now the coronavirus is doing some of the driving because uh, the Washington Post-ABC has a new poll out showing uh, Donald Trump pulling ahead of Joe Biden, uh, I'm sorry, Joe Biden pulling ahead of Donald Trump significantly in the state of Wisconsin, which, as people know, is a state where the coronavirus is spiking. Um, You know, obviously, we don't want to minimize the human death toll from coronavirus, but it has a political impact. And, you know, the spike that's happening right now is coming at the worst possible time for Donald Trump. It is absolutely reminding everybody. that we all have been living with this since January, February, March. Um, It's coming just a week before Election Day. And at least in one state that's being kind of racked with the coronavirus right now, it's actually costing Donald Trump uh, a lot of support. Um, I mean, Biden is up there by, you know, 17 points. Pretty unheard of. Uh, That's probably the widest margin in that poll, one of the widest margins I've seen in any poll for the state of Wisconsin. And we all know Wisconsin is one of those big blue wall states. Biden must have to win and Trump must have to win as well. So Biden looking very strong there. Right
2: now and i just can't underscore this enough the 2016 total from uh then Canada trump with then nominee hillary clinton 47.22 percentage points to hillary clinton's 46.45 percentage points i mean really we're just talking about a couple of thousand votes we all remember what happened in kenosha county just several months ago the state of wisconsin having 10 electoral votes this exchange can president trump Afford to lose Wisconsin? Does he still have a path?
6: He would have to. He would have to essentially substitute another state. So right now, you know, if the max sort of breaks down the way it did in in sixteen, obviously Trump can kind of recreate his victory there. Uh, if any of the blue wall states go to Biden, Trump would probably need at least one more state. People look at uh, a place like Minnesota, some place like that. But his margin is so narrow, and the Cook Political Report, very widely respected, um, sort of prognosticator, today moved Texas into the toss-up column. Now think about that for a second. The state wow. of Texas. I don't think they've elected a Democrat for president since Lyndon B. Johnson, of course, was from Texas, now being considered possibly in play. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I think it'd be uh, if if Joe Biden wins Texas, then we are truly moved into an entirely new uh, world order as far as politics in America. It's hard for me to see that really happening. But the fact that that's even in the conversation, the fact that the possibility Joe Biden could take a state as deep, deep, deep red as Texas shows you just how narrow Trump's path is. He has literally no margin for error.
2: I mean, what does that mean for down-ballot candidates in the Senate?
6: I mean, look, that's the other place. Uh, you know, some people are saying even if Trump pulls off some kind of miracle, kind of repeats the miracle from 2016 and, and gets a uh, an Electoral College victory in the face of a Joe Biden popular vote majority, that, that doesn't really help us quite as much in the Senate, um, where you do have a great number of uh, endangered seats. You've got Maine, Arizona, Colorado. The list is very, very long for the Republicans. The Democrats are worried about Alabama, of course, with uh, Doug Jones down there, kind of a, a, a surprise win. Um, but you could have a scenario where at least the Senate flips Democratic and you know Trump Biden may be too close to call for a little while. But we're actually some prognosticators are even starting to talk about the possibility of ticket splitting where you have yeah. you know, that's a very old fashioned concept. People old as old as I am, not as not as not as young as you, Kevin, but old as <laughs> old as I am remember when people sometimes would vote for different parties for the President and the and the House or Senate candidates. Some people who are kind of turned off by Trump might vote for Biden there, but then stick with the Republican candidate for the Senate or for the House District where the a little closer to home, and maybe they like them better. So, look, I, I, to say this is going to be unpredictable, to say this could be chaotic, to say we cannot predict, no matter how many crystal balls we stare into, those are all understatements at this point. I, I think we should be prepared for a lot of surprises. You could have a Donald Trump win the state of Minnesota while Joe Biden wins the state of Arizona and you know goes to the White House. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways this sort of the, this checkerboard could um, come into play, and uh, almost anything you told me could happen. Trump wins, Biden wins, uh, split ticket. Biden Biden wins but loses the Senate, I'd say, sure, that's all possible.
2: And M.J. Hager is the Democratic Senate candidate from Texas up against a, 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 someone who has been in office for, for years, Senator John Cornyn, yeah. the Republican incumbent. I mean, you got to just imagine people like Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell also up for re-election, but Senator John Cornyn, I mean, a Republican from Texas, they must be livid at ter- in terms of uh, what... Had traditionally been a, a a a hallmark for conservatives, really, like the the foundation Bush world. Everyone uh, coming from Texas, and just to see this shift from the from the incredibly well-respected Cook Political Report to see that shift tossed, uh, moved to a toss-up. I mean, it's either fool's gold for Democrats, uh, or or it's uh, or it's you know, uh, better O'Rourke. Pulling out the, the skateboard and going door to door and trying to get out some, to pull off an upset, Craig
6: yeah I mean and I I am again I'm gonna go on the record saying I do think it's a little more in the fool's gold category that's a great description of it democrats have been talking about turning texas blue that's kind of their phrase for two or three or four elections now um it's a deeply republican state it would take a a shift in the demographics and in the voting patterns that I it's just hard to imagine happening Uh, that's a very much a long-term bet obviously the growing Hispanic population there very friendly to the Democratic Party and you know it does feel like over time you could see the uh, Texas go back kind of to his original Democratic roots, producing someone like an LBJ back in uh, back in the 60s. But uh, a little hard to picture that in 2020. But, you know, the fact that John Cornyn actually has to kind of toss and turn at night a little bit about are there people going to come out of the woodwork and, and vote for his uh, Democratic opponent, the idea of Mitch McConnell himself facing a race down there um, in Kentucky, you know, this would have been unheard of. Two years ago, when the um, when the economy was still doing well before the virus, and and you know candidly, I think before people started, maybe some voters at least started to get their fill of Donald Trump and uh, and some of the tweeting and some of the other um, things that he does. So you know it's been interesting for us here. McConnell, of course, is a very taciturn guy. He's a loyal Republican through and through. But I think as we saw the stimulus um, fight collapse, where you know Mnuchin and Pelosi were trying to pull that together at the last minute, Mitch McConnell just he didn't play. Like he just was basically like my folks will not vote for this. Please don't cut a deal, Mr. President. I don't I don't really see this happening. And it was one of the most really glaring situations where the Senate Republicans unhitched themselves from Donald Trump to kind of save their own uh, save their own skins in their individual races for the control of the Senate.
2: Absolutely fascinating. Craig Gordon, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, uh, joining us to break everything down. And listen, folks, I'll just say it. I don't predict, but if Texas goes blue, it's a blue wave. I think that's safe to say. If not uh, then you know. We'll, then we'll see what happens. Hey, Craig, let's go Eagles. They play the Cowboys on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get it Have in you, there.
6: Don't, don't ask me who – I actually, do know who our quarterback is. Him, go, Denucci.
2: What? I know. You guys are looking more That's like Italian a mess boy. than my birds. All right, Craig Gordon, <laughs> the bureau chief here. Uh, coming up next, we check in on the uh, on the markets. Go, birds. Sorry, D.C. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. COVID has the market
2: spooked. Stocks tumbled in the U.S. and Europe as rising coronavirus infections and tougher lockdowns added to worries about the economic hit from the pandemic. Diving into the Bloomberg terminal, the S&P 500 index fell 3.5%, the biggest drop since June amid a surge in covid-19 hospitalizations especially especially in the midwest political ramifications for the midwest a theme that we've been covering the past several days and of course we'll all be looking At those Johns Hopkins University cases, and the case counts, energy shares sank with oil prices, and technology stocks were also among the worst performers, with Microsoft down after a disappointing forecast. The VIX index, a measure of expected U.S. equity volatility, climbed to the highest level. Get this. The VIX index climbed to the highest level since June. June. See you, Red. I got my Bloomberg chart of the day. More than 90% of S&P 500 members are declining today, declining. Take a listen to Megan Green, senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. She says COVID-19 lockdowns and restrictions have markets spooked. Here she is.
3: The resurgence of the virus shouldn't have surprised any of us, but I think it is surprising a lot of investors, particularly as we're seeing some countries locked down again. I think it's generally consensus that no one has any appetite for further lockdowns after what we experienced in March, April. And actually, we're seeing Ireland, Wales, for example, who locked down um, pretty, pretty severely. And now France and Germany are talking about measures.
2: That was Megan Green speaking earlier today to my colleagues on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. She is a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Chris Meekins joins us on the line. He is a healthcare policy analyst at Raymond James. Chris, welcome to the program. What went on in the markets today? They are spooked about the coronavirus.
4: Yeah, I think the markets are spooked about a lot of things. I think coronavirus is one of those. As someone who was a deputy assistant secretary at the Department of Health and Human Services in the area of public health emergencies, I can tell you this was predictable. We knew that as... Temperatures dropped. People who felt comfortable being outdoors and had outdoor activities without seeing a spread of the virus would just move those activities indoors. And that's exactly what we're seeing. If you look at the areas where we're seeing the biggest pops, it's areas where high temperatures were below 50 degrees for a period of time. And so it isn't shocking that we would see this uptick. Additionally, I think you also have some uncertainty around the election, both some investors believing that a blue wave and a Democrat sweep could result in even more Senate seats than they thought initially possible, while some others looking at some of the poll numbers closing, wondering whether President Trump can pull a rabbit out of his hat again, which could reignite trade wars. So when you're looking at the week ahead, everything points to more volatility, not less.
2: It's remarkable. Chris Meekins is with us. He is uh, now a uh, director of Washington Health Policy Research Analyst for Raymond James. He is the former deputy assistant secretary. Chief. To, he's the former chief of staff to the deputy assistant secretary uh, for preparedness and response at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He was also uh, a chief of staff to Congressman Andy Harris, the Republican from Maryland. So he is incredibly well uh well-studied and, and experienced when it comes to, to all of these issues. We're thrilled to have Chris uh, with us, especially on a day like today. All right, let's pick it apart. So you mentioned uh, the dynamics that are happening, not just in the United States, which I think has been lost in the national discourse regarding the uptick in cases, but also throughout Europe. Uh, and and the uptick has happened in states with more progressive politics as well as conservative politics. Um but in terms of as it relates to the stimulus front, now that we're going to get, st- or now they're saying rather, on Capitol Hill that stimulus will come in the lame duck price tag TBD. My question to you, sir, is this: Okay, with all of the volatility coming from the elections, is that a- how much of a significant risk does election volatility, i.e., court cases counting, you know, uh, votes and whatnot, uh, after November third? Way into the pressure that lawmakers are going to feel on the stimulus front in the lame duck.
4: Yeah, I think that I'd be really careful just assuming that, oh, they'll get it done in the lame duck session, because, oh, the assumption was they would get it done in July, and then it was August, and then it was September, and I they know. had to get it done before the election. It's like Groundhog Day. Lame duck. Yeah, And now they're talking lame duck, and then they'll talk, well, if Democrats sweep, that means we likely would see a greater stimulus package, which I think is true. But unless you use the budget reconciliation process and get creative there, you may need 60 votes in the Senate still, which no one's talking about Democrats getting. So there just needs to be this acceptance that this is not going to be easy. And I think that the market's finally realizing that a bunch of the assumptions they had, including that a fiscal stimulus bill was going to get done, which I would argue was largely priced in, the fact that it didn't get done now has the market more concerned. When you layer on COVID, you layer on the election, you layer on all all these different pieces of what's going on, the Fed saying they may not have that many additional tools at their toolbox and really needs Congress to do something, none of that is encouraging from a market perspective. With that being said, if you go back and look historically over the last 40 years, the market generally trades down in October
5: yep. and then
4: uh, right before the election, and then it tends to make all of it back by year end or by the swearing-in of the new president. So this isn't that uncommon for us to see.
2: All right. I think that's such a great point. Okay, and, and this is the other thing. I think Jonathan Farrow has been all over this uh, on Bloomberg Surveillance and, of, co- of course, the, the host of The Open as well on Bloomberg TV and radio. You know, he he's saying regardless of who wins the presidency, the markets are going to interpret it as a win. If it's Trump, they're going to say deregulation. If it's Biden, they're going to say more fiscal spending. Am I wrong? Is he wrong? Well, actually, it's not me. If he's wrong, we'll blame Pharaoh.
4: Go ahead. <laughs> I think that. Don't tell Pharaoh. Now I'm
2: nervous. Look, <laughs> Barada, don't market, tell Pharaoh. Go ahead.
4: <laughs> yeah, in the last forty years, what we know, so it's from the 1980 election to present, what we know is that the market for the entire term of a Democratic president has gone up. Uh, from a healthcare perspective, at least, which I spent a lot of my time 10%. And under Republican presidents, it's gone up seven. So, what we can see is the market, generally speaking, goes up, but that doesn't mean that's always going to be the case for every specific month and every specific period of time. I think, regardless of who wins the presidency, the market will be up over the next four years. But that doesn't mean we're not going to have volatility in the near term as the market tries to get a better idea of what all this means. And it also is important why folks like my colleagues at Raymond James that cover individual stocks and so many of the guests you have on are able to offer opinions about how to position yourself going forward. If Trump wins the election, the China trade fight is going to continue And probably even be amplified because he doesn't have to run for reelection again, so he's going to be able to do whatever he wants and say whatever he wants with, largely speaking, little accountability to it. If Biden ends up winning, the assumption is well, it'll be a more traditional administration where we know what policy things could be coming. But it also means if Democrats sweep, you probably get a higher corporate tax rate, so you have to take that into account and what that could mean and when the corporate when the capital gains taxes could go up in timing. So there's just a lot of uncertainty and for the next six days we'll do that now i think all of us are hoping that on election night we're going to have a result and i think more likely than not we'll know what the result is before the market opens on that wednesday but it's not outside the realm and all of us that have lived through 2020 with the craziness that it's been knows it's not outside the realm of possibility that we could have a contested election and with amy coney barrett making it to the supreme court it only increases the likelihood that we would have um yeah some greater uncertainty about a court challenge and what that could
2: mean. All right, Chris Meekins, healthcare policy analyst at Raymond James. Thank you so much, sir, uh, for your time. And by the way, a word about Pharaoh. no one prepares harder than him. I mean, it's he's just a total workhorse, and it's uh, it's awesome to look up to him. Uh, download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Coming up. We check in with our all-star political panel. we got a lot to talk about. Buckle up! Six days! I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 991.
0: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
7: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
4: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: Buckle up six days to go until November 3rd. All of that. Plus, the markets are spooked over COVID. Stocks tumbled in the U.S. and Europe. All of that. And that anonymous New York Times. Remember that column? The anonymous New York Times? Well, they released the name with just six days to go. Do you, do you believe that? Both of the uh, candidates were flooding the campaign trail, barnstorming across the country. Former Vice President Joe Biden was in his home state of Delaware, where he voted early and delivered remarks at the Queen Hotel in Wilmington, Delaware. Very nice hotel. Uh, criticizing President Trump. Now, Joe Biden joining the nearly 80 million Americans who have already voted in this Election. Wow, record setting early voting in this election. More than 50% of the 2016 voter total have already voted in this election. Here's Joe Biden.
4: This country can't afford former years of a president who thinks he's only responsible for the well being of the people who voted for
6: him.
2: Meanwhile, President Trump, speaking to reporters in Las Vegas after a campaign event, condemned the looting and sometimes violent protests in Philadelphia, located, of course, in the key battleground state of Pennsylvania, following the deadly police shooting of Walter Wallace Jr. Here he is. You can't let that go on. Again,
5: a Democrat-run state, a Democrat-run city, Philadelphia. We don't have
4: that.
2: All of it comes as the Northeast drives record U.S. testing to monitor the COVID-19 surge. The seven-day average of U.S. tests rose to 1.2 million yesterday, part of an upswing that started about a month ago and has continued unabated, this according to the COVID tracking project. The markets are spooked. The stocks tumbled in the U.S. and in Europe amidst rising coronavirus infections and tougher lockdowns added to worries about the economic hit hit from the coronavirus and dr anthony Fauci, lead story on bloomberg.com says that the vaccine won't be ready before january here with me for the hour an all-star political panel aaron mcpike political and media strategist and john sitelidis geopolitical strategist at trilogy advisors and diplomacy consultant to the u.s state department john here we go five out five days and some hours (laughs) Big day. Wow.
5: Welcome to the beautiful, messy world of politics in the United States. I mean, (laughs) it's almost like we forget. This is what happens every four years. And the race is almost always tight in the last couple of weeks of the race. And uh, it's no different. Maybe it's a bit more dramatic because of the media obsession with Donald Trump and the health condition of Joe Biden and the stakes regarding the way the world is viewing American politics right now. But the fact that they're rushing headlong into all of these swing states to try to secure those last votes, this is what it's all about, Kevin.
2: It is. It's what it's all about. It's what political junkies live for, Aaron McPike. I mean, what do you think is really driving the final contours of this election? I put it to my boss Bloomberg Washington Bureau Chief Craig Gordon earlier, uh, and I asked him, and he said, it's coronavirus. It's all about the coronavirus at this point. I mean, you look at the uptick in Wisconsin, battleground state, 10 electoral votes, uh, which was just on a razor, razor razor-thin margin for uh, President Trump against Hillary Clinton back in 2016. Wisconsin, now you got this uptick in cases, Aaron.
3: There's no doubt that this race is all about COVID and it's been all about COVID all year long. I mean, as you mentioned, the investors are are spooked and the Dow is falling some as it has the last couple of days because we are not prepared for a second lockdown or this next big spike that's happening this fall and winter. But we've been talking about it. For the last six to eight months that we are going to see the spike. And all this is doing is shining a light on the fact that the Trump administration has not put forward a national plan. So you can expect that Joe Biden will hit that over and over again again. When he speaks publicly between now and election day although every day is election day and so you're going to see him saying that because he wants to be on the nightly news he wants people to see clips of him saying there is no national plan because the trump administration has not put one forward and that's the very first thing he'll do as president-elect
2: well it's not true i mean look you can be a republican or a democrat there is a plan you can disagree with the plan but I, the fact of the matter is, I mean, there is a plan. You can disagree with the implementation of it. You can disagree with whether or not he should have done more or taken a different approach. But let's cut through the noise here. John said because it's, it's for one thing, the criticism, well, there's not there's not testing. Well, I'm looking at the Bloomberg Terminal. Northeast drives record U.S. testing to monitor COVID-19 surge as the seven day average of U.S. tests rose to 1.2 million. There were 1.2 million tests in America Yesterday, I think the the, how does the president in the final days of the race, whether or not it makes a difference, I don't know. But John said, how does the president in the in the final days of the race uh, essentially essentially say, look, and he tried to do this, but there's been an uptick in cases in Europe, in progressive countries, Germany, in conservative countries, UK and here in the United States. How does he divorce the politics from the pandemic it's it's an impossible task, John.
5: It's a great challenge because this is a once in a 100 year event. And I think almost everyone, honestly, has been completely unprepared for this. First of all, I think the president, as he's been doing all year, has made very clear that this was Chinese incompetence, if not deliberate malign activity towards the United States and the free world to allow a local outbreak in Wuhan to become a global pandemic. Now that it's been a pandemic for the last nine months, I think it's very important to emphasize the fact that we don't have a national parliamentary system the way many of our European allies do where you have a centralized government and a national plan. The United States is comprised of 50 sovereign states, and it's the governors who have the executive emergency powers, as we've seen playing out in the great debate about to what extent does a state have a lockdown and how long does a lockdown go on. And the federal government has almost no say over the attendant economic impacts of the pandemic response and I don't believe a national mask mandate is going to resonate with a large number of people who are concerned about possible COVID infections but don't want to surrender their freedom in that regard and they want to have their common sense Trust it. I actually don't think that COVID is going to be the overall issue going into the last couple of days, because I think most Americans have essentially made up their mind as to how they're going to address COVID in their lives, in their workplace, and in their relationships. And I think it really is what kind of a country are we going to become in the next four years? And Joe Biden keeps talking about how he wants to unite the nation and Mm -hmm. heal the nation, because his position is that Trump has torn the country apart. And Trump says, I'm going to rebuild the economy and protect the country from socialists. So two very different visions for the United States, and I think that's going to be the driving force over the next five days.
2: And just to dive into the Bloomberg Terminal, global tracking of COVID-19 cases top 44 million, deaths exceeding 1.16 million, U.S. hotspots northeast driving, again, that record U.S., testing vaccines will not be available in the united states until january at the earliest according to dr fauci the u.s government's top infectious disease experts and of course the u.s also agreeing to buy 375 million dollars worth of eli Lilly's experimental covid-19 antibody if that proves to work germany and france again i can't i cannot hammer this point home enough germany and france will clamp down on movement for at least a month coming close to the stringent lockdowns in the spring as Europe seeks to regain control of the rapid spread of the coronavirus. I'm Kevin Cerilli, you're listening to Bloomberg 991.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerilli on Bloomberg 991 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: I love this story. I love this story in my Bloomberg terminal. Steve Garbarino, I, we gotta get him on Matt Shirley, one of our producers on the show He's, he's, he's back in the office, thankfully um, Steve Garbarino Wrote this brilliant story on the Bloomberg Terminal Halloween Terror Now on the drive through menu The Oaks Park Haunted drive through offers five frightening Options to choose from Including one called The Condemned This year, lots of haunted Houses are closed, yet there's a detour Some Haunt promoters are taking drive through attractions, many of them using conventional effects of an indoor spook house moved outdoors, are trying to provide the same sort of jolts and shocks to customers who don't leave their vehicles. So this Oaks Park attraction, which I don't know, where, is it near us? No, it's in Portland, huh? All right, here I am thinking I'm going to have something fun to do. Uh, the uh, 44 Acres, this place in Portland, 44 Acres. Of the outdoor grounds of the historic Oaks Amusement Park, which has been around since 1905. Oh, I I love amusement parks. They have um, they they turn it into like a drive-through haunted house. So you drive your car through this park, and you get you get jump scares as they're called. Thirty-five performers in masks. Got to wear the mask, but in this case, it actually helps them in their industry because they have the mask on already for the COVID. But it's for Halloween. And prosthetics, I guess you know the ghoulish. Anyway, eighty bucks per car between seven and nine. After nine, they slash. See what I did there? Slasher hours, costing about seventy bucks. I think that's awesome. You know, going to I I love that that entrepreneurship. John Cidalides is with me. Aaron McPike. Aaron, would you go through a drive-through haunted house? No, I would not. What's the point? Why? What's the point? Well, it's a little Halloween fun, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, but uh, part of the
3: fun of being in a haunted house is uh, what kind of jumps out at you. So I've I've seen. I'm I'm old enough to have been through haunted houses. I don't need to. I
2: don't need to do it. I love this story. I'm the story. Sorry for the business. <laughs> it's, a, it's okay. I love Kevin, this story. I have to it agree was in, with Erin. I mean, Street if I'm girl. in
5: the car, I know nobody's going to push me around or attack me, and so all the scare is gone.
2: You know, I'm not going to lie. My parents, who we love, back in Delco, took me to see *The Sixth Sense* when I was like, I don't know, six or seven years old. When I, I mean, I don't don't fact check that. I mean, it might have been eight, but uh, they filmed it in Philly, and I knew all the locations. That movie scared the living heck out of me. That's all I can say. All right, switching back to policy because I feel like Christine Barata, who is off today, <laughs> would be yelling at me for going off on a tangent. For too long, anyway. Uh, did anyone hear hear about the tech hearing on Capitol Hill today? Virtually, of course. Uh, Jack Dorsey was on Capitol Hill, and he took a tough questions. Tough questions from GOP Senator Ted Cruz. Take a listen,
4: Mr. Dorsey. Does Twitter have the ability to influence elections? No. You don't believe Twitter has any ability to influence elections?
7: No. We are one part of a, a spectrum of communication channels that people have.
4: So, you're testifying to this committee right now that that, that Twitter, when it silences people, when it censors people, when it blocks political speech, that has no impact on elections?
7: People people have choice of other communication channels with which… Not
4: if if they don't hear information. If you don't think you have the power to influence elections, why do you block anything?
7: Uh, Well, we have policies that are focused on making sure that more voices on the platform are possible. We see a lot of abuse and harassment, which ends up silencing people and having them leave from the platform.
2: That was Senator Ted Cruz talking with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. Uh, The tech CEOs uh, facing criticism on Capitol Hill, bipartisan criticism for different reasons. They ended up being accused by senators of abusing their powers over political speech. Of course, only six days until uh, the election day and that exchange, uh, Senator Cruz went on to say, who the heck, and he didn't say heck, who the heck elected you and put you in charge of what the media are allowed to report? It was a very, very poignant question. Aaron McPike, the tech companies and Google, Facebook, they're really under a lot of scrutiny this go around. Well, they are.
3: And a big part of that is because they've gone unregulated for so long. And here's the thing. We regulate so many other industries. It is important to have some kinds of checks on major companies that in many ways, you know, some tech companies can function as utilities. So it is important that we try to figure out how we can put some checks on these guys. Um, And yes, as you said, there are bipartisan complaints. Um, Twitter might should have probably been checking some information that was not factual a long time ago. But once you wait this long, of course you're going to irritate the other side when it hurts them. So I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on these guys over the next uh, few years, and Capitol Hill is going to have to get some kind of action uh, in gear.
2: You know, yeah, it's 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 really remarkable. And to get wonky for a minute, folks, the, what you're going to be hearing a lot more of, as Aaron just alluded to, is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Section 230, which allows for companies essentially... So if you're online, if you're on a, a social media platform and you, you post right now, it allows for the big tech companies, the, the social media platforms to wait, to step in, to moderate the user speech. So, if it's hate speech, for example, or a threatening speech, right now, those companies under Section 230, Section 230, you can, they can wait, they're not held in account for it. So, this helps their platforms to grow unencumbered by the legal challenges. Google's YouTube, for example, they don't have to pre-screen the millions of videos that are uploaded daily. Facebook, for example, doesn't have to read every comment so users can post flow freely and clean them up later if, if something bad happens. So that is it, it, it's a uniquely American problem. John Sitalides, we got to protect freedom of speech. We also got to account for what's going on, John. Should it be repealed? Should Section 230 be repealed.
5: Well, I don't, I can't tell you if there's a clear cut answer here, but the section 230 issue is what's paramount. And obviously you've got the giants of tech, Facebook and Google and Twitter here that want to maintain their section 230 protections against lawsuits. They don't have any liability because they're classified right now as platforms, which means that they don't regulate uh, for any other purposes except say users. Uh, content preferences and to protect their consumers, but not by law, what is published. But if they were to be classified as publishers because they are actively curating content and Republicans and Democrats for different purposes will accuse them of censorship or lack of sufficient censorship. Democrats very upset about Facebook and what happened with the Trump campaign in 2016, and Republicans challenging Twitter and Facebook now for double standards. All
2: right. We got to leave it there. Coming up next, much more with the panel. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
0: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. He did the
8: monster The monster, the monster
0: it was a smash. He the I love this song.
2: I remember back in 2016, Trump would always play this towards the end. He would play these Halloween songs for the rallies and the crowd. This is my favorite D.C. legend, this story, and I'm on the government's website, The architect of, uh, the Architect of the Capitol.gov, AOC.gov, which is not that AOC. It's the Architect of the Capitol, which is the .gov, so it's the, the halls of Congress. All right, so they, they wrote this up. Uh, uh, there was a congressman back in the 1800s, 1887, to be precise, named William Preston Talby. And he was shot by a reporter for the Louisville Times. This is because the Louisville Times wrote an article alleging that Congressman Talby had an affair. Over the next two years, the former member, who now became a lobbyist, Congressman Talby, disgraced. Then he becomes a lobbyist. They kept bumping into each other in the halls of Congress. Okay, So Talby would tease the reporter, a much smaller man. He was a small, he didn't have that much, he he was a small guy, vertically challenged. I am, you know, I admit it. By 1890, the reporter had enough of the harassment and shot Talby on the stairs. He died 11 days later. A stain on the stairs in the Capitol building is often attributed to the former congressman's blood. This is the most haunting story in the Capitol. Happy Halloween, everybody. Um... My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg uh, Radio. Natalie Wong on the Bloomberg Terminal. Manhattan bosses pull back expectations for return to office. New York's technology and finance bosses are tempering their expectations for bringing people back to work. This comes, of course, uh, as the virus threat is overshadowing the election in terms of what investors are most... Worried about a surge in coronavirus cases and the attendant concern that economic growth will slump drove the S&P 500 to its worst day since June. Investors dumped shares of companies that need a robust recovery. And all of this comes as now talk of fiscal stimulus is not happening, obviously, before Tuesday's election. But a lot of uncertainty, as our, our panel has pointed out to us, over whether or not it will come even during the lame duck. Meanwhile, across the pond in Europe, Germany and France about to impose more stringent restrictions, similar to what happened in March and April, shutting down bars and restaurants, but allowing for uh, schools and other businesses to be opened because of the uptick in Europe. I asked what all of this means earlier this week to Senator Kevin Kramer, a Republican from North Dakota, in terms of when fiscal stimulus relief is coming. Here he is.
8: Yeah, great question, because I, I've always believed there would be a lame duck deal, and I think as long ago as a couple of months ago already, the window had gotten pretty tight for a pre-election deal. Um, partly because some people were waiting to see how the rest of it still played out, uh, partly because we were getting closer to the election and nobody wanted there to be winners, only losers. And the, while the White House and the, and, uh, the U.S. House were negotiating up, uh, you know, the Republican Senate was hanging tight at about half a trillion dollars, and so I never really did think we were going to get a deal before the election. I was hopeful, but you asked the magical question, that is, and how much? And I think it in the uh, lame duck, regardless of the election result, now the election result will no doubt inform to some degree what that number might be. But either way, I think the pressure valve gets, gets opened and people get back to... Yeah, at least some semblance of normal, and it'll be a number between the two trillion that they're talking about now and the half a trillion that Republicans. Have what
2: do you say to from. folks who say, you know, we just can't afford to spend upwards of two trillion dollars?
8: Uh, I say you're right, but we also can't afford to do nothing. And uh, and while the debt and the deficits certainly are important, and it, obviously they're skyrocketing, but we pretty much threw those rules out the window when we passed the not not just the CARES Act, but the you know dollars worth or so before that even so you know now it's a matter of how much is necessary I think at that at the point of the CARES Act we didn't know how long it would last I don't think anybody anticipated that the downturn would last this long there's been some nice recovery Kevin certainly in lots of areas however I maintain it's very fragile. You mentioned investors up front. I think investors are watching very carefully and the Federal Reserve has pretty much you know, done all it can with liquidity uh, tools that they have. It really is upon What us.
2: specifically are you fighting for in the next round of stimulus? Yeah,
8: so one of the big things I think is uh, paycheck protection forgiveness. I think that's been clumsily handled by the SBA. Uh, I think a lot of our, our lenders at every level, large, small credit unions, banks, um, You know, they they encouraged, strongly encouraged, after our encouragement, to uh, get a lot of borrowers into the PPP, a lot of people have been pleased with it. However, um, it was always designed to be forgiven if people used it to maintain their payrolls. People have been doing that, and now the bureaucracy kicks in. I think we have to do that, but I think we have to help the airline industry. And I know some people think, well, that's just a bunch of billionaires, rich people. You know, next to energy itself, I think the airline industry probably touches the value chain of just about everything in, the, in our economy, and they need some help until we can get you know demand back. Well,
2: let's talk about energy, because last week in Nashville at the final presidential debate, there was a key moment where Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden uh, said that he was not against banning fracking. He was against banning fracking on federal land, and then he went on to say that he would like to have zero emissions by 2025. How do you
8: square that circle? Well, you can't. And that's the problem. That's why um, I I think that his message was incoherent. And to the degree that it was um, what he meant to say, it was frightening. I mean, he did clean up the... um, He said complete zero emissions by 2025, which is absolutely impossible, obviously. A net zero by 2050 is what the the United Nations, the IPCC, uh, is advocating for. Um, So he's very confused. I I think he doesn't know much about energy policy, quite honestly.
2: Well, what do you you say to the family of of refinery workers or the refinery employees? I mean, I know energy is such a crucial economic engine in your state. You defeated a Democratic incumbent in your last uh, election. Uh, Energy played a crucial role in that specific election. I mean, what do you say to refinery workers who have been pummeled by the economic downturn this year and who are trying to understand, and they don't really... Maybe they're for Trump, maybe they're against Trump, maybe they're for Biden or against Biden, but they're trying to figure out what their economic forecast is going to be for not their portfolio, but for their kitchen counter.
8: Well, no question. So when you talk about a desire to transition away from oil and gas, first of all, it's I don't even know why you would want to do that. We are—we have an abundance of this resource in the United States. We've gone from being a net exporter to a net, or from a net importer to a net exporter. That has had national uh, security implications as well as economic implications. Um, so, so, I think what we have to tell them is no, no. We're not going to transition away until there's all until there's some other market force that requires it. We're just going to find cleaner ways to utilize. Um, you know oil and gas and coal and the other the other baseload fuel sources that are so important in the value chain of the global economy so uh, er, you know everything we consume touches energy or energy touches it. Every value chain, every supply chain of everything we grow, produce, manufacture is touched by the energy supply chain so we have to fight not just for those workers but for everything that they represent, and that is national security, economic security as well. Final as
2: question it. for you. I mean, from your sense as a senator, not up for real election, I mean, what, what's the, the mood? Is, do you sense a, a, a shift coming or do you sense uh, a long-term political fight for the results, I mean, where where yeah. are we there? Uh,
8: my hope is that the results won't be a long term fight. I mean, I know, we know that that's possible. I think there's there's a lot of romance sort of built around that, that idea. Um, I certainly hope we can avoid that. Um, my sense right now is is that the president's gaining some momentum. It, what's unknown is that we're in this very peculiar time where you know half the country's voting early. Um, and and those votes are are coming in pretty rapidly, Uh, there'll be some shifting. I mean, many votes were cast. I thought something like 50 million before Joe Biden had his snafu over energy policy the other day at at a debate, by the way, where I thought the president performed beautifully and, and very well. But all of that said, I do feel a momentum shift. What the result is going to be, nobody knows. That's why we do it every four years.
2: That was Senator Kevin Kramer, a Republican from North Dakota. Uh, And really, I think he just captured there, folks, just how much lawmakers in Congress are uh, at a standstill. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. This is such a good song. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio All-Star Panel. The panel, Aaron McPike, political and media strategist. Aaron, what was your best Halloween costume?
3: I was a wizard when I was in third or fourth grade. And I made it
2: myself. Lots of glitter. It was fun. Always. Gotta love glitter. What, um, okay, (laughs) wait. So, uh, were you a specific wizard? Were you Dumbledore? Were you Merlin? I was was Merlin. I was Merlin. That's fun. That's a good one. I mean, why you sound a little (laughs) like, you know, Merlin's a good one. (laughs) I thought so. Yeah. All right. John Sidolidis, what was your best Halloween costume?
5: I was afraid you were going to ask. but uh, Well, because your fears, I'm always honest your fears with you. have
2: come true.
5: <laughs> when I was younger and much more svelte, uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov.
2: What?
5: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's what I was afraid of, Kevin. Thank you. Uh,
2: okay. You know what I was? <laughs> this, this is not, okay, so I went through a phase when I was a kid where I was uh, a bunch of different foods for Halloween. One year I was a pack of Lifesavers. Another year, I know, you can't make this up. Another year, I was um, a pizza pizza. That was a fun one. And then my favorite, I was French fries. I literally dressed up like a pack of French fries. It was a great costume. I didn't win. I didn't win. Who knows? But I remember that I lost, you know. I'm not competitive or anything. All right. Uh, now it's time for my, f- I should have had a costume contest. We should have done a, a virtual or a, a, a audio on, an audio, a radio listening. Oh, we could have done that um, contest. I love Halloween. I really do. Um, but now it's time for my favorite part of the program, which is what is on the panel's radar? Aaron McPike, what is on your radar? The
3: outing of Miles Taylor.
2: Oh, you stole so mine, Aaron. Go the, ahead.
3: <laughs> the former DHS chief of staff who has finally announced that he is anonymous behind the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times calling out Donald Trump and his administration back in 2018 and the author of the book by Anonymous. And I guess he considered this an October surprise because it's with less than one week to go before the election is over. But it landed with a thud in Washington because so many other former Trump administration.
2: I got to be yeah. honest. I mean, I and I really I I got to be candid. I, I I had to google him. And and that's me being incredibly honest. So I I, I don't think this was the What do you think, Aaron? I mean, as as a, a what's your take on on the clout uh that he has in terms of what we who the the level of and caliber of person that we thought it was. I thought it was a cabinet official. I thought that's how the Times d- described it. <laughs> I thought it was
3: a cabinet official as well, or potentially John Kelly or someone of that stature. And it wasn't. And Miles Taylor is only 34 years old, which means that he came into the administration at about 31. (laughs) Um, And, you know, he certainly had a nice education and upbringing, but I don't know how how much that should factor into the New York Times' decision to publish it. But being chief of staff to a cabinet secretary, in some cases, that might be a powerful position, and others less so. But this was a bad decision, and honestly, he seemed to use his perch to get this book deal and also a TV contract. And it doesn't—it doesn't really seem. I mean, it seems to me like it's a spineless thing to do, and. He, I think, really is going to be mocked over the next couple of weeks, as he should be, and as the New York Times should be for publishing it—the well,
2: original op-ed. I, I mean, this was an incredibly, in, in, you know, th- there was talk that this was Mike Pence. I mean, that was in the rumor mill, and it. Uh, Aaron is, I, I think, you just brilliantly laid it out. John, come in here. Uh, and nothing against—I don't—I, I just was stunned. That they that the the New York Times would publish an anonymous op ed and all of the the news cycle that that drove John, um, yeah, I mean your your thoughts.
5: I don't think I have much to add to this. Uh, it's it's a sad story, and I think it says more about the New York Times and media institutions than it does about Mr. Taylor. Uh, the the obsession with Donald Trump and That's finding fair. any That's way very to fair. take him down. You know, it just it, it, it got us nowhere, and and I don't think it really helps the, the civic discussion in this country about policy and politics in a very constructive manner. So, not much more to say there.
2: All right, what's on uh, what's on your radar?
5: Well, you know, Kevin, you always bring me on for geopolitics. Yes, I so do. I, I always
2: do, and I feel bad that we're in like political season because I always learn when I talk to John. John always uh, teaches me. Go ahead.
5: The world doesn't care about American politics as much as we think it does. So we have now the possibility Ugh. of a low-level Russia-Turkey proxy war in the under-assessed, under-analyzed caucuses battle between Azerbaijan and Armenia.
2: Yes. And you have
5: now the Russians who have three times put together ceasefires, including with the support of the United States and of France. The Azeris keep violating the ceasefire. And now the Russians are putting pressure on the Turks they're shooting down Turkish drones in Armenia and Azerbaijan. They struck 80 Turkish-backed fighters in Syria, killed them all, and are now beefing up pressure against pro-Libya uh, forces that Turkey is backing in Libya. So on three different fronts, we have tightening tensions between Russia and Turkey. Got to make sure this thing doesn't blow out into something bigger.
2: That is so brilliant. That is so brilliant. And again, I'm going I'm to bring it back here. For a second, is NATO on the same page for this,
5: John? Uh, well, NATO is not very mo- much involved in the Armenia-Azerbaijan uh, battle. France is very much on Armenia's side, but most of the countries have sat that out. What's fascinating, France Canada, has that a major the split, dynamic. go ahead. There's a major split inside of NATO regarding the future of Libya, and that's a huge issue. Wow! Got NATO members pitted against one another in Libya.
2: Wow! Yeah, that is that is very very huge. And John, uh, you and I will catch up about that offline. John Cidalidis with our geopolitical radar uh, for the day. Here's what's on my radar. Bringing it back to the Keystone State because we are five five days and some hours away from uh, the the election. I cannot believe it's I cannot believe that it's Tuesday. Uh, Greg Store on the Bloomberg Terminal, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to schedule fast-track review of a new Republican bid to bar mail-in ballots from being counted in Pennsylvania if they arrive after Election Day. Acting a little more than a week after their 4-4 split left intact a three-day extension for ballots to arrive, the justices doused Republican hopes of an immediate reversal now that Justice Amy Coney Barrett has joined the court. In a statement that accompanied the order, Three conservative justices said the high court could still intervene later. Emphasis on that. Barrett, who was sworn in at the court on Tuesday, didn't take part, citing the need for prompt action and a lack of time to review the case. Again, the Supreme Court has rejected a Republican uh, or has have re- has rejected the Republican uh, policy on fast tracking a Pennsylvania ballot case. This obviously matters. Keystone State battleground state uh, mail-in ballots Um, and essentially they want republicans want to bar mail-in ballots from being counted in pennsylvania if they arrive after election day this is brace yourselves folks because this is going to be a remarkable remarkable election unlike we've ever seen i don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Hey, my thanks to Aaron McPike. Aaron. it's great to have you on. Thank you for, for lending us an hour of your time. She's, of course, a political and media strategist. And, of course, John Sidolides. John, what are the boys being for Halloween? Do they know?
5: My boys are now teenagers, 15 to 18 years old. They're too cool to be doing trick-or-treating. They oh, won't well, be they're, wearing they're any
2: They're losing cops. it. I mean, it's hey, Halloween's <laughs> is, it's a socialist holiday. You get free candy. Geopolitical strategist a Trilogy Advisors, diplomacy consultant at the State Department. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening. I was tongue-in-cheek. relaxed. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
0: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.